the center of our spirituality is not our own personal individual experience in the closet. It's us amongst the people of God experiencing together the power of God's teaching us and training us and making us more like him through these ordained means. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on the Christ and Culture podcast, we will talk with Jordan Stefaniak about what the Reformers thought concerning spiritual formation. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment, On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about Dr. Quinn's favorite topic, Cardinals baseball. (laughs) Definitely one of the favorite topics, but not necessarily the highest. Okay, one of your favorite topics. Well, uh, the World Series right now is in full swing, although sadly my beloved Atlanta Braves have been eliminated from the playoffs unjustly, I do believe. But uh, anyway, Dr. Quinn, you are a baseball fan, an avid Cardinals fan. And this season was particularly special for you and all Cardinals fans, as all-time great Cardinals Yadier Molina and Albert Pujols said their farewells to Cardinals fans and baseball fans as a whole. What can we learn from these guys about finishing well? First of all, in light of their departure, a brief moment of silence. Okay, that was long enough. So first of all, Dr. Keithley, uh, who of course is co-host of this podcast on sabbatical this semester, is an even greater Cardinals fan than I am. Grew up in Missouri, born in St. Louis. Um, So he can speak much more, some of the encyclopedic kind of data about Cardinals baseball. But I grew up a Cardinals fan. My my parents, uh, we would go to see the Cardinals every summer. Usually we would spend one night in St. Louis and try to catch a doubleheader, a couple games watch Ozzie Smith do backflips on the field, watch Lee Smith close it out, Jack Clark hit long, long balls, and have just uh, followed them ever since. But you're right, both Yadier Molina and Albert Pujols will go down, both of them Hall of Famers, no question, first ballot Hall of Famers. And maybe um, Adam Wainwright, right? Isn't that? It's possible, yeah. I, I haven't heard yet if he, if he has made a decision about next year, but Adam Wainwright has been a fantastic pitcher for us. So if you're not familiar, um, Wainwright is a pitcher, but the two that we know are retiring, Pujols uh, was a first baseman. He's really been a designated hitter most of this year. Yadier Molina, one of the greatest catchers, maybe the greatest catcher uh, in baseball history. So we, we call Yadi and Albert. Um, first of all, I'm not, I'm not saying anything on behalf of their character. I think they're, they're fine guys. They're not perfect men by any means, and there's, there's certainly some speculation about various things. But from a Cardinals perspective, uh, first of all, almost anybody who knows baseball will tell you that St. Louis might be the greatest place to play baseball. Um, I even heard, speaking of Adam Wainwright, he came up in the minor league Braves system, and it was actually one of the Braves coaches that told him when he was being traded to the Cardinals and said, Adam, you're going to baseball heaven, where he's where he still is, and he may in fact retire this year. Uh, but for, for Yachty and for Albert, Albert, of course, was at the Cardinals for a number of years, uh, then went to California, played a little bit for the Angels, played for the Dodgers, and then came back this year for a one-year contract with the Cardinals. And it was so fun to watch uh, Yachty and Albert finish. Both of them went, uh, I guess, relatively deep into the postseason, but also both of them in the game that ended the season for the Cardinals, both of them ended with a hit. 
And it, it so rallied the base in many ways. And especially with Albert, Albert was in a, a home run chase like we haven't seen from the Cardinals since the McGuire era. Uh, the McGuire and Sosa chase. And of course, we had a little bit of that with Aaron Judge and his home run chase this year as well. But for Yachty, it, or for uh, Albert, he was chasing a 700 mark, which only four people, I think, have actually met. So he's he's in the ranks with The Babe and a few others. Hank uh, Aaron. Hank Aaron and others who have over 700 home runs. Um, uh, so it was fun to just watch that. And, and the thing that I want to highlight from a Christian perspective is there's so much we could say about the nature of sports and what's good about them as well as what can be dangerous about them. But I think Yachty and Albert portray part of what's so good about sports in that sports, especially from a professional standpoint, they should rally communities. They should unify communities. And you see that. We saw that this year uh, on display. It's not the only time, but we saw that on display this year where even when Albert was was hitting at other ballparks, he was getting standing ovations. Everybody has their phones out. Uh, when he hit a home run against another team, the other team would cheer for him. I mean, you just you see that kind of unity, and that's what it should be. Sports should bring that kind of unity instead of always the competitive division that we see. And I really just want to underscore that point. It's it's sad, but but bittersweet to see Yachty uh, and Albert um, retire. But they've had great careers. Both of them ended on a hit, and and I love seeing sports bring people together instead of tear them apart. It's a good word. We need a little more bringing people together in uh, an increasingly divisive world. So if it takes Yadier Molina and Albert Pujols to do it, even this Braves fan says that's okay with me. <laughs> so we'll talk college football next time, and we'll see how together we can be on that <laughs> one, Nathaniel. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> If you've been outside recently, you notice the weather is crisp, at least it is here in North Carolina. In fact, Jordan, we woke up this morning to the first 32-degree day, and my family currently lives in a camper that's colder than you think it is. Um, leaves are falling, pumpkins are being picked and placed on people's porches. As far as I'm concerned, between now and Christmas time is the best time of the year. In fact, I asked my class today, if anyone disagrees with that, you fail the class. <laughs> we have a lot of fun talking about that, and of course... In the month of October, which we're currently in, the celebration known as Halloween dominates a lot of what we do at the end of this month. But for Christians, perhaps the better thing to remember on October the 31st is Reformation Day. Jordan, you may have heard me talk about this before, but I was 19 years old sitting in a college church history survey class the first time I ever heard the story of Martin Luther, and I was furious because no one had ever told me this before. And I was mad at everybody. I was mad at my pastor, my parents. I was mad at teachers. No one had ever told me. October 31 is the day that Martin Luther nails the 95 theses to the the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany and lights the fuse of what we now call the Reformation that changed the world. Our purpose here today is to talk about reformers and spiritual formation. And with us to do that is our good friend and fellow at the Center for Faith and Culture, Jordan Stefaniak. Jordan, thanks for being here. Well, it's always a pleasure to be in the room with Dr. Benjamin right, Quinn. Right. Uh, so Jordan is a Ph.D. student in philosophy at the University of Birmingham in the U.K., also is the co-founder of the London Lyceum podcast. If you're not familiar with the London Lyceum, do go check that out. They have a fantastic uh, archive of podcasts and continue to record. To cap it all off, he's a doctoral research fellow here at the Center for Faith and Culture uh, as part of our John Templeton Foundation grant. Jordan, thank you for joining us. And let me jump in first with this question. When we talk about reformers, what are we talking about? 
Yeah, so it's funny that you mentioned that you didn't know about sort of the story of Martin Luther and uh, the nailing of the theses to to the door um, until you were 19. I think I was probably in similar shoes, probably really? somewhere. I think it was freshman year. When, I don't know how old I was taking a church history course. Yeah, um, I had known vaguely of Martin Luther because my uncle, whenever there was some old Martin Luther video that movie that came out, and he had brought it over to some sort of family gathering. So like I had. Yeah. Very little context, but I knew he's a white dude who looks like he's a monk cause, or a friar because he's, <laughs> you know, basically bald, the yeah. bald spot. That was my context. Yeah. So it is unfortunate that so many of us don't have all the goodness and the riches of what we have with the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. So when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, we mean something that really began with Martin Luther. I mean, there are, you know, obviously things that are happening before it that are, that are setting this up. But this is really this great, profound moment of knocking uh, these theses on the, on the door of the Catholic Church, basically saying, I, I want to debate some points uh, of doctrine. Because Luther, Martin Luther, in his context, he's, he's a pastor. Uh, he's got his own interesting past. But one thing that he notices is that there's a practice of what's called indulgences the Catholic Church is doing at this time. And he sees them abusing it. And tell so, us what the indulgences are. So the indulgences are basically, you know, the church is selling different things uh, to the poor people for spiritual benefits. In other so, words, they're saying they're coming to people who maybe have a family member that has passed away, and the assumption of Roman Catholics at this time uh, is that these people are spending X number of years, maybe centuries in purgatory, but if you'll buy this thing from the church that may help to build a building or something along those lines, then you can spring your family members from purgatory into heaven. Yep, precisely. So you're, you're going to shave off time for your family members uh, spending in purgatory if you give money. And the way it's been going, going gone about is really troubling to Martin Luther. At the time, at the very beginning of this, He's not objecting to the practice, but he's objecting to the abuse of the practice. Mm. And over time, he realizes actually this practice is not found in Scripture anywhere. But uh, this really just it explodes an entire debate uh, over the next several decades and, and centuries to come between what becomes the Protestant reformers, which would be basically all that is is they're protesting against the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and they're trying to reform it. So initially, they're not trying to create a new church. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to create First Baptist Church down the street. They're looking at the, Catholic, the one Catholic Church and saying, we see corruption here mm-hmm. and we want to reform it from within. They didn't have a category for creating a new church at this time. Right. But over time... This group, it catches fire. It catches fire among the people because they begin to translate the Bible into the vernacular of the people, so their own language, so they can hear it and understand it for the first time. For most people's lives, they go to church and they hear the Bible in Latin, so mm-hmm. they have no idea what's being said. And then with the Protestant Reformation, it begins to be translated in their own language, so it's just it's the talk of the town. Everybody's engaged with it. And so this whole group, these theologians, these pastors that begin to push back against uh, the, the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church are categorized as Protestant reformers. And there's several main groups of that. You have what would traditionally be called the big capital R sort of reformed, uh, which there's several segments that would go in that. You have reformed churches in different areas, whether that's in France or the, whether that's in Switzerland or whether that's the reformed church that ends up becoming the Church of England, the Anglicans in England. Uh, but you also have the Lutherans in Germany. 
So a, a lot of it is geographically centered, but there are, there are certain distinctives among them where they have different views on uh, different aspects of theology. But for the most part, they're this giant group that's amalgamated to some degree, but they're all protesting yeah. uh, against the Roman, er, yeah, Roman Catholic Yeah, and I want to just underscore the word Protestant here or protester because, as you said in the beginning, these are not dividers. These are not separatists. They simply have deep concerns about what's going on in Roman Catholicism of the day, and they want to reform it. Ultimately, the two have to separate. And ultimately, the Roman Catholics effectively kick Luther out of the church, and then mm-hmm. kind of off we go with what we might call a denominational era. And there, there we see a, a proliferation of denominations from that point forward. But the intention of Luther and of what we might call the magisterial reformers was just to fix what's broken, yeah. not to try to create something brand new all over again. Yeah, I mean, if I had coffee with Martin Luther and I asked him, what's what's your intent here? He would say, I want to unify the church and I want to bring it to holiness. Mm. And he would say, "Who?" if I asked who's really dividing the church, he would say, it's it's the Pope and the Roman Catholics. Right, right. It's not me. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to keep the church on, on the track of being the true one uh, holy Catholic apostolic church, and, yeah. and they're the ones who are dividing it, not me. So I want to come back in a minute to uh, to how we might think about Roman Catholicism today, because as as Protestants ourselves, we're Protestant, we're Evangelical, we're Baptist. That's that's kind of the way that yeah. we would understand ourselves. But I think we also, at least you and I, certainly have a deep appreciation for the Church Catholic. And I want to come back to that in a little bit, because it's hard for us to tell this part of the the story of the Church without sounding like angry Evangelicals, and that's not really yeah. where we're at. But so we'll we'll circle back. You, you mentioned the word holiness there. Mm. And for our purposes in this conversation, um, if, if you could sit down with Luther and other reformers and ask them not about your tactics with respect to the Reformation, uh, but what is more of the, the spiritual formation that you are undergoing yourself, the kind of spiritual formation you want to see in your church and in your family, what would they have to say about that conversation? Yeah, so I think there's a pretty unified approach to thinking about spirituality among the reformers. Now, they are going to have their fair share of differences from the Roman Catholic Church, but they would share this intuition that spiritual formation is a distinctively ecclesial-centered enterprise. And by that, I just mean it's focused on the church. Hmm. It's not an individualistic journey that if I just go off and travel long enough by myself and experience enough new things, if I just read personally enough books that I'm going to grow spiritually, it's located in the life of the church. So you can look at various confessional documents that you find in the Protestant Reformation. Protestant reformers were just tremendous, prolific authors of confessions. You get all these pastors who join together, and they pen what they believe the Scriptures teach. So here's an example. Westminster, uh, the larger catechism, because this gets right to the point of what I wanted to get at. Question 154, it asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. So just really, how is it that we grow in our own spiritual walk and our connection with him? It says, The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. So really what the key here is, for the Protestant Reformers, central to the life uh, of the Christian in Christian growth is experiencing the preached word, is partaking of the sacraments, which that's, you know, traditional language for what a lot of Baptists would call ordinances. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. It's the same thing, yeah, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and then prayer. So they would say these three things are the centrally 
appointed means that God has given us to really commune with him, to grow as Christians. These are the ordinary means. So that ordinary means language is important because they're not saying that there aren't extraordinary means. It's not saying that there aren't extraordinary circumstances in which you grow from things that are apart from these. But for the most part, for the typical ordinary Christian, how do you grow as a Christian? Mm. You attend church, you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're baptized, and, and you pray. So you continually hear that word preached to you and applied to you through the sermon and through, the, through, through different aspects of confessing things together. And you partake, you, you eat this nourishing sort of meal, not in a carnal sense, mm-hmm. uh, but in a yeah. spiritual sense that encourages you and uplifts you and reminds you uh, of the death and resurrection of Christ, and then praying. And these are the means of how we grow as Christians. So for me, looking at this sort of ecclesial, simplified approach, it's deeply encouraging. Uh, I don't have to be constantly on the lookout for the next book. I don't have to constantly be conjuring up some original idea of how can I grow uh, and become a better Christian. I I have these God-ordained, simple, ordinary means Mm. of how the Lord is going to steadily, over time, grow me as a Christian. Now, this is ordinary. So there are you're not going to always see the results on the next day. I like to think of it as working out. Uh, people, I, I used to be really into working out. I still like working out. I just don't have as much time. But people would come to me and ask, like, what do I do to gain muscle? Because I used to be really small, and then I worked out a bunch and gained a bunch of muscle. And so people would ask me. And they would always want that quick fix solution mm-hmm. where I just work out for a month and I see all these results. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly having to remind them, look, it's consistency and patience. Mm-hmm. And if you look back in a year, you look back in two years, you are going to see those results that you want. But you're not going to see them after a month. Yeah. You're not even going to see much after two months. You have to be patient. And it's the same thing with our spiritual growth in attending church, in partaking yeah. of the sacraments, and praying. That long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. So in other words, your, your point here, parroting from the Reformers, um, it's, it's this ordinary means of the sacraments or the ordinances uh, of prayer, of the word. And you said centered in this, this church context. It's not an individualism. Mm-hmm. It's an ecclesial, church-centered kind of way. But there's, there's almost an anticlimactic reality to it that this is, not, this is not look for the next spiritual high. This is that long obedience. It is that consistency in the word, in the prayer, in church, in, uh, in the ordinances, in sacrament. Yeah. Um, so... You know, our listeners may hear this, Jordan, as, okay, well, before I listen to this podcast, I already knew, read your Bible and pray, and that's my devotional life, yeah. as we tend to call it. Is that what you mean? Is, you, do you, is it something more than that? Well, I don't necessarily mean that, because you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find the terminology of quiet time or yeah. devotion yeah. in the Protestant Reformers. They did not have a concept of that. Uh, most people couldn't read, mm. so they don't have even the ability to read their Bible or to read a devotional. Uh, so it's not that I'm saying that that's a bad thing. You obviously should be reading the Bible. That's part of what it means to, to grow as a Christian and understand things. I mean, you look at Acts 17, and when Paul teaches to the Bereans, they, they go look at the Bible to see if this is actually what mm-hmm. he's teaching is true. But there is a reality that the center of our spirituality is not our own personal individual experience in the closet. It's us amongst the people of God experiencing together the power of, of God's teaching us and training us and making us more like him through these ordained means. So I, I, I just think oftentimes for us, we, we get into these sort of 
situations and these aspects where we really do think that it's our individual effort that is going to make sure that we grow in Christ, but it's not. Uh, those are good things, but the Lord has, I think, as, and you find this in the Protestant Reformers, really crafted us to be communal animals where we need to be together in this context mm. to truly be formed into who he's made us to be. So here we are talking about these Protestant Reformers who they don't set out to break away from the Catholic Church, but yet that's, that's what ends up happening. So when it comes to their spiritual formation, are they looking to do something completely new in the history of the church, or are they doing something that they find is in continuity with both the scriptures and the apostles and the church following that? Yeah, so I think you're going to find them in continuity. They're going to make their own distinctions and their own uh, uh, tweaks as needed, but they are going to say, look, this is just how the church has thought about spirituality. There have been excesses. There have been deficiencies over time with different segments. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of discernible, This, for by and large, we see this is how we grow as Christians. And so they're going to pull from the best of the, the, the Christian tradition and say, look, these guys are on the right path. I want to, to retrieve what they've been saying and apply it to my own context and to my own day. So are you, are you mad at the Roman Catholic Church then? Or how would you, if you're sitting in the 16th, 17th century um, and you're sort of in the mix with some of these, these early and second-generation reformers, how do you think about the Catholic Church? I'm probably deeply vexed. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm probably confused to some degree, hurt. Um, there's probably a lot of just emotional angst and turmoil that yeah. it goes back and forth in my mind because today I can look around and say, well, I don't have that much personal animosity, and I can look across the, the the lawn and see the Roman Catholic Church over there and say, I can make friends over there. Yeah. Um, I can find people who I think are true Christians over mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Um, though they have some deficiencies in some areas, and I'd have to talk to them about it, but I think there are true Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. A- at this period of time, though, if I'm in the 16th and 17th century, I'm probably in a lot of pain. And mm. depending on my emotional maturity, that's either going to turn out to me being uh, abrasive and very strong polemical, hmm. or it's going to turn into me, um, I don't know, I, I would probably be sometimes too soft and sometimes too strong. It would probably just depend hmm. on on who was pushed, like in my own community. Yeah. What is being, who's being affected, What who's being affected in what way? Yeah, it's very localized. It, it definitely would. And we feel this in our own ways today. It definitely would be how close is this in your family? How close is this in your neighbors? Does this begin to divide your neighborhood? Um, we do feel it that way. You know, when I think about the formation of the Reformers, one of the things that, that stands out to me is um, one of the first things that Luther writes um, following, uh, following kind of the excommunication is uh, is basically a handbook for families, where he's he's he addresses it to heads of household, and he teaches them how to teach their families the mm-hmm. Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, uh, and he even gives them prayers for throughout the day. A prayer for here's how you start mm-hmm. your day, here's how you pray at the dinner table, here's how you pray at night, and it's I love how it's 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 raw even with I'm praying for my workplace, I'm praying for my various vocations, and I'm teaching these things to my kids. How might we take some of those insights from 16th century 
early, early Reformation kind of decades and even begin to apply that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So the proliferation of what they call catechisms yeah. was just ubiquitous in this period where they're constantly trying to, the catechism is just basically a question and answer format. Mm. Uh, who is God? What is God? Uh, what is the Lord's Prayer? You're asking these questions and you're memorizing sort of answers to it. And they are great structured ways, especially for families, to mm. teach doctrine. You don't have to have a degree to, to understand how to ask some of these basic questions. Yes. And the way they're repeated over and over, they are just naturally committed to your own memory. Mm. So for me, in my own family, I've taken what is uh, one of the, it's called the Baptist Catechism. It's an adaptation, ultimately, of one of the earlier uh, Reformed confessions called the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's adapted a little bit lower. I've taken like a children's sort of version of it, use it for my own family. And so questions like, um, who made you? Well, God made me. If a three-year-old can understand Mm -hmm. that, they can repeat that and remember that. Why did God make you? for his glory. And you can teach these basic things and you memorize them. So they're teaching you yourself. And they're also teaching your kids healthy, sound doctrine that's then just naturally implanted within them. So, and they focus on the right things too. They're focusing, like you've mentioned, on the Ten Commandments, on the Lord's Prayer, things that are of foundational importance Mm -hmm. to how we should think of ourselves as Christians and that we hope form us over time. The Protestant reformers, they didn't have a bunch of scientific information explaining, well, if you do these different things, you will naturally be formed and be your neural pathways in your brain yeah, will do exactly. all this stuff. <laughs> and yet these things did that, mm-hmm. and they functioned in ways that helped them to memorize, understand, and begin to really just um, live, eat, and breathe mm-hmm. what's found in the Scriptures. There's a reason the Bible is constantly talking about you know, in the morning and e- evening, I'm meditating on yep. you. Just this sort of rhythm yeah. ends up really changing us and forming us over time. Yeah, a few, about a year or so ago, um, we have a, a lady who, who's so uh, faithful to teach some of the young people in our church. And uh, I had asked her to look at a particular curriculum that was kind of a catechesis curriculum. And I was careful to do it and talk to her about it because I didn't want her to feel like I was trying to put our five-year-olds in seminary or anything. But it was designed for children. And I just said, hey, why don't you just give this a try for a few months, see how it goes. And she came back, and she, she stopped me multiple times to say, I think the kids are enjoying it, but more importantly, I've never learned so much in my mm-hmm. life. And this, this sweet lady's in her 60s. And she was simply reinforcing your point of, I wish someone had told me these things earlier. Um, how much She even made the comment of how much better my questions would have been over the years if I had had this kind of foundational instruction. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a Baptist catechism. What is this? Where would one find this? So you can find that. I think it's called—it's in teaching—something uh, tr- about, like, teaching and training hearts. You can find it, I think, at Founders Ministry Press. They have one with several different mm. Baptist catechisms. You can also—I think a tremendous resource is called the New City Catechism. Yeah. yeah. So if you're not familiar with that, they have an app for this. And it's, it's based from Tim Keller's uh, mm-hmm. Redeemer Church, and mm-hmm. they pumped a lot of money and resources into us, and it's awesome. So they have and they have a children's version of that. Yeah, well. a children's and an adult, adult version. What's cool about it is it's on your phone, mm. and in the kids' version, they have not only a, just a prayer, they also have scripture, they have some, uh, they have some explanation of teaching on different things. You're going to hear from Keller, you're going to hear from other reformers like Calvin, but you also have a song for each question. Which, if you have kids, that is a huge That's the best way to learn. Yeah. beneficial uh, tool, and it's free. Hmm. You download this. You got it on your phone. There's no excuse t- 
that you have to really not use something like that. My mm-hmm. kids love the songs. So I love to go through that. It's 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 beautifully done. So I highly highly commend using the New City Catechism. All right. So as we wrap up, we're le- we're looking at and just reflecting on um, kind of a Reformation season, you might say, the end of October. Not only do we have Halloween, but Reformation Day on October the thirty first. So Jordan, do I hear you saying to our listeners? Here are your takeaways. Um, have a, a thick approach to this spiritual formation, thinking of it as word, the sacraments, ordinary means of sacraments and prayer. Also consider maybe something like a family catechism or a family rhythm, and then dress up like Martin Luther for Halloween. <laughs> you could dress up like Luther if you want, but there's all <laughs> sorts of other fun reformers you can dress up like too. Like who? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's Ulrich Zwingli is one of the, the, the fascinating figures of the Reformation. And of course, if you've got beard, if you if you're a guy with a beard and you listen, you can basically be anyone you want in the Protestant <laughs> Reformation. True. The longer the beard, the yeah. better. Yeah. Jordan, thank you for joining us today. How, how can people follow your work at the London Lyceum and elsewhere? Yeah, so you can go to our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Everything's linked to there. There's resource tabs. There's uh, articles. There's podcasts. There's YouTube things. You can find all the stuff there. You can go check out Twitter. I'm there, too. Just search JL, then my last name, Stefaniak, which should be somewhere in the show notes, so you can Google it and search for it. Those are the places I typically interact. Um, I'm not really into the Facebook or Instagram world. Yeah, I get it. So do check out London Lyceum. They they not only have fantastic content, but he also has some swag. He's got hats and T-shirts and sweatshirts. He even has those awesome three-quarter baseball tees that Jordan has failed to give to me up to this point, even though I keep asking for them. But he's also a St. Louis Cardinals fan, so we'll forgive him for all these other deficiencies. Jordan, thanks for being with us, brother. Now it's time for the listener's favorite segment called On My Bookshelf, and this is the time when normally we're asking Southeastern faculty or staff what is on their bookshelf, what they're reading, but today we have a special guest, Dr. Dan Strange, who's the director of Crosslands Forum. He's with us this week at Southeastern, speaking to our students as well as in our classrooms. Dr. Strange, thank you for being with us. What is on your bookshelf? On My Bookshelf is a book that's not even published yet. I've been reading it, the manuscript. It's by a guy called Christopher Watkin. He's a British... Um, philosopher really who lectures in Australia in Melbourne and it's a book called Biblical Critical Theory and I think it's going to be a really important book Colin Hansen from the Gospel Coalition has already said it's one of the best books he's ever read Tim Keller's got behind it Um, it's a very important book because what it tries to do is to look at the world um, through the Bible not just looking at the Bible but how do we look through the Bible to understand Mm. some of the huge shifts that are going on in our our world at the moment and how the narrative of creation for redemption might um, answer some of the most difficult questions that we face and how we might think biblically. He has a particular tool that he uses uh, to, to do that. It's going to be a big book, but I think it's going to be a really, really important book as we try to engage with some of the, the, the theories of the world that are all out there at the moment that we're all discussing. Um, if you wanted a shorthand to describe it, it's like a, a ma- the most maximal biblical theology you could ever think of. It's very orthodox. It's going through creation, full redemption, consummation, uh, but saying how does what the Bible say, how does the Bible interpret the world in that way, looking mm. at some of the big um, uh, dinosaur themes of the world that have been going on over the last 100, 150 years. So Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkin. I think it's coming out in November 
Um, there's quite a splash about it at the moment. Um, it's going to be published by Zondervan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you go to whatever podcast platform that you use? Give us a five-star rating that we can share with other people. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time.